Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 11th, 2019, and this is episode 2420 of the Survival Podcast. 2420 of the Survival Podcast. We are heading for kind of a landmark episode, episode 2500. I've been kicking around an idea for what to do for episode 2500, and I'm not announcing it today, but I've decided what we're going to do. I think it'll be fun. It'll be similar to what we did before, but with a different twist on it. Um, and we won't have anywhere near as much time leading up to it as we did for like episode 1000, so maybe it won't turn into a seven-hour episode like that one did. Uh, but I think it'll be fun, and uh, tune in Monday, either to the blog or to the show, and I'll tell you what we're going to be doing for episode 2500. Let's tell you what we're going to be doing for episode uh, 2420, today's episode. Well, it's Thursday, so it's time for a listener call show. And I've got a good good uh, arrangement of calls uh, set up for you today. I got building economic strength into a new marriage. How I choose a bank. Person wants to know how I choose a bank. More on when you need an FFL when you're manufacturing your own guns. What it takes to move to the U.S. legally from abroad. This is something I don't have a great answer for. So maybe we'll get someone to call in or uh, talk to us more about this for our international listeners that would like to live here. Uh, Air Creek questions, one on fire resistance and another one about using it for underground structures. And then a question on modern monetary theory, or MMT. And I think the caller is actually making a confusion here. There is the theory of MMT, which is actually fairly accurate. And then once you have a theory, you can extrapolate, well, what does that mean you can do or cannot do in relation to that theory? And I think a lot of people today, when it comes to modern monetary theory, theory are conflating the two. MMT is about how modern monetary policy in the United States works. And again, it's fairly accurate. But some people think it, mean, it means things that it doesn't mean. We'll talk about all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let me just real quick remind you, if you like this show and the work that I do, the number one way you can help us is by um, supporting us through the Members Support Brigade. That is the MSB. MSB. And uh, you join the MSB. It's 50 bucks a year. What do you get? You get discounts to almost 80 supporting vendors. You use a handful of those, you get your money back. You support the show, you get your money back. Uh, I do hear from people frequently that say that being an MSB member, you know, is profitable for them by a few hundred bucks a year that they put back in their pocket by using MSB discounts. And it makes me very happy because that's exactly how I built that program in the first place. You can learn more by going to survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. With that, let's get into uh, your calls for me today. The first one from a, a newly married couple. Hey, Jack. Aaron from upstate New York here. I recently got engaged to an amazing woman, and we are planning our future together. You have mentioned quite a few times couples who win with money tend to win with, tend to win at life. What tips and tricks would you recommend for financial planning and budgeting for a couple? Thank you very much for everything you do. Have a great day. First, let me just say the fact that you care about this going in um, is uh, it means you're going to be off to a great start, assuming that you can get your partner to care as much as you do which is at all. If you care at all about this, then you'll probably do really well. 
Let's start out with the statement that couples that win with money tend to win in life. That actually comes from Dave Ramsey, who I uh, totally agree with about uh, debt elimination and budgeting and have some significant differences we've talked about before with his investing advice. Um, <clears throat> it's not horrible. I just don't agree with it. I don't think it's the best way to manage your long-term investments. Uh, getting hit in the face and taking it on the chin whenever a recession comes when you don't have to, I, I don't agree with that. Otherwise, um, I am uh, about 90% on the same school of thought Dave Ramsey is with general monetary advice. Um, and I just want to give credit for the statement because it is the first place I ever heard. He generally says people that win with money tend to win in life, and I have changed it. I, I don't disagree with that statement, but it really applies to couples. So I want to start out with why this is the case. Why do couples that win with money tend to have marriages that do well and have kids that grow up and do well and be the couple that actually makes it until they both lay in the dirt? Why does that happen? It is because the number one reason that marriages fail is stress. Stress on the marriage. It is generally not that people fall out of love with each other. It does happen, but it's generally not the reason. Um, it is generally not due to infidelity. It is generally not due to any of the things that we think it is. Those things all tend to happen because the couple is stressed. And eventually, if you're stressed long enough and you don't identify the cause of the stress then something that's very close to you your your mind will assign that this is the this is the reason if i had married a better man if my wife didn't spend so much money whatever fill the blanking with it but the person that you're with every day the partner you're with the person you're going through the stress together becomes the the object of the stress and therefore the object of the anger and then it turns to infidelity it turns to i just don't want to be with you anymore it turns into whatever Uh, now, th nothing fixes this if you married the wrong, if you married a psycho or something. I mean, we're talking about, in general, when you got started, you and this other couple both had an equal chance of having a successful long-term marriage, and one was stressed and the other one wasn't. The one that's not stressed is probably going to make, and the one that is has a real chance of failure. And the number one cause of stress in our society today is, is economics. Uh, it's debt. It's not being able to pay your bills. It's not being able to give your children the things that you think they should have. Sometimes the problem is you think they should have more than they need to have. But a lot of times it really is. People just wish I could do these simple things for my kids, and they can't do it. And then that leads to all other types of stress. So if we can eliminate that, <clears throat> then we give a marriage the optimum chance that if two people really do love each other and want to be with each other, they're going to be able to stay with each other until one of them departs. Um, <clears throat> now, my advice. My first advice is to sit down <clears throat> with this woman and say, we're going, to be, we're going to be getting married, and I am looking forward to spending the rest of my life with you, and I want to make sure that we have a long, happy, productive marriage. And one of the things that we need to think about is how we're going to handle money. And this is what I think we should do. And after I tell you, I'd like to hear what you think about it. Okay? This way you're not telling the other person the way that it's going to be. Because if you do that, you may end your marriage before it starts. It's not, you know, just, no, don't do that. 
And, and this is basically how I think anybody should manage their money. And then, therefore, when a couple comes together, I don't believe in this separate finances bullshit that's become something in modern society where I have my money and you have yours. This is effing stupid. If you do not trust somebody with your money, you should not trust them to sleep behind you when they could strangle you to death in your sleep with a rope. Okay, uh, you're coming together 100%. So the money all goes into one pool. So now, if one person should do this, then a couple should do this because they both should be doing it anyway. And it is pretty simple. It is that you should sit down and form a budget. And the single most important piece of that budget is going to be discretionary spending. This is where all the problems come from. Wherever you buy a house, you're going to have a house payment or an apartment for rent, okay? You're going to have an electric bill. You're going to have a grocery bill. You're going to have all of these things, and they're going to come out to something reasonable unless you're being completely stupid. So, yeah, don't buy more than you can afford. Don't rent more than you can afford. Don't get the car you can't afford. So be reasonable there. So that, that budget is largely going to sort itself out, right? Then you're going to have... You need to put, we're going to save this much money, and then that money goes away. Then there's going to be a certain amount of money left. And then you have to look at that and say, okay, how much of that money can we just do whatever we want with? And then you each get a portion of that, and that is your piss-away money. That is the money you can spend any way you want. You can save it up for two months and buy something really nice. You can buy a chocolate bar and a coffee every day, whatever it is. But that number needs to be agreed upon, and you need to hold each other accountable to it. And then anything beyond that that's not going away in the long-term savings, that goes into short-term savings, which also should have been in the budget in the first place. So you're adding to, whatever's left, you're either adding to your long or your short-term savings. You see what I'm saying? The, the short-term emergency savings account, and the long-term retirement, that money needs to be part of the budget itself. And and that will make you have some serious come-to-Jesus. Because you might put that budget together and go, well, shit, there is no money. There is no money here. Well, then you have to cut housing, you have to cut transportation. Whatever the biggest expenses are, you have to figure out how to get, you know, get those numbers down. Because the truth is, when two people... Assuming that one's not living at home with mom. When two people that were living in separate households come together in one household, there should be more money than there ever has been for either one. Assuming both have an income. And it sounds like that's the case here. So that is my, my biggest advice. is you, you should not be spending money unless you both agree to do it outside of your discretionary spending budget. If that one rule is followed, if, if both people agree to that and then in good faith do so, you will not end up in trouble financially. There will always be some money being stacked into the reserves. When you don't do this, you spend every penny that is available. You find a way to do it. Every month, you will be out of money. Even if you're putting money into some savings separately, because you at least did that right, there will never be anything left. Because what will happen is this. If you guys agree, let's say that you get 
$300 and piss away money apiece. I have no idea how much money you make. That might be a lot. That might be a little. I, I don't know. But $600 total, $300 each. You can do anything you want with it. You know, you can go to the dollar store and buy 300 things, or you can go to, uh, I don't know, somewhere and spend 300 of it all in one shot on, on, a, on a really nice, you can do whatever you want. But that's, that's the piss away money. Okay? You will then be very careful about how much you piss away. And all of a sudden, you'll be getting through a month and have like 25 bucks of that left. And the smart thing to do at that point is take that 25 bucks and pitch it into the savings account. And don't keep score on it either. That's nonsense. You both agree that that's what you have, and you both agree that everything's equal. So whatever's lower, just pitch that over into the savings account and start over with your next budget. If it requires you to have a separate account to do it, I don't mean a separate from each other account, but have like the piss away account. You know, you have a debit card that goes to that piss away account. You can only spend money out of it. Or the, the best way to do it is pay yourself in cash. The best way to do it is, you know, out of each paycheck, there's going to be a portion of that. It might not be the whole month's worth that goes to your piss away money. And get that money in, in hard bills and put it in your pocket, your wallet, your purse, etc. Okay, And then that way you can't overspend it. If you don't have it, you can't spend it. And it will make you very greedy with it. And then you can do things like, well, look, I got extra 25 bucks at the end of the month, fold that shit in half and put it in a jar somewhere and get my next $300 or whatever it is. And, and if you do that, you'll square this away. I wish I could get my daughter-in-law on board with this with my son. Every time we have a conversation about this, she says, well, you just want me to stop spending money. No, I don't want you to stop spending money. I want you to be a big girl, grow up, set a budget for yourself, and only spend that money, and do whatever the hell you want to with it. But for some reason, as adults today, especially young adults in that millennial range, they seem to really fear setting that limit. Like, it makes it real the day they do it. And I'm telling you, it is the number one thing. Always be honest with each other and see this as a team sport. And this is the number one reason I think those of you that keep separate finances are screwed. Marriage is a team sport. Marriage is a team sport. One of the many ways that we keep score in that sport is by how much money that we save to be able to do the things that we want in our lives together. And if you have separate finances then you're keeping score against each other or keeping score together against life. That's my belief. Uh, with that, let's ironically take a question about banks here. Pretty short answer I got to this one. Hi, Jack. My question is, uh, how do I choose a bank? This is Don from Florida. And uh, details are, how do I choose a bank, man? Uh, check the podcast. I don't see anything really much about specifically choosing a particular bank over another, what to look for. Do I just go with the big ones? You know, I had Wells Fargo. I let that go because of all the fiasco there. How do I trust the bank? What do I look for? Anyway, thanks again for all you do, bro. Take care. Well, you said you checked the podcast, and that probably means you did some search functions on the website, and you didn't find a lot on how to pick a bank. And been doing this show for almost 11 years now, and I've said very little on it, so that should start to tell you something. And what that should start to tell you is... It really ain't that big of a deal. You said, you know, how do you trust them or whatever? Banks are highly regulated. Um, 
they they they're there's a lot of things they can do that you might not like, but one of the things that they're in general required to do is to say what they do and do what they say. Right. That's that's the real way to understand how banking regulations are, are today. There's a lot of things that banks are flat out required to do or prevented to do, and then there's a whole bunch of leeway within that that they can act on. And the 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 one like kind of final major regulation is well if you charge fees you have to say you charge fees if you change the rules after the person has their account you have to notify them that you've changed what those rules are if we say i'm talking we as the government if we say you now have to start doing something you didn't have to do before you have to then absorb the expense of telling your customers that you're now going to be doing this thing that we're making you do Okay, and that does not mean I'm a friend of the banks because the banks are actually running the government. But there is some. Think about it this way: in a, in a corporation, you have different departments. Those different departments often see each other as rivals, and uh, they do have some control and authority over each other. But in the end, the CEO is the one counting the bills and the one making the money and the one making the final decisions. And you can tell either side to shut up. Kind of look at the banks and the government that way. It'll help you when we get to the final segment of the day to understand some of the things I'm going to say about that. Um, but when it comes down to finding a bank, this is what I want. I want a bank with locations around me so that when I need to go to the bank and talk to a human, there is I don't have to drive you know two counties over to find a bank. I am not really that concerned with having a bank that's nationwide where wherever I go there will be one of my banks there. That partly is because I don't travel a tremendous amount. If I traveled a lot, then that might become more important to me. The bank I use is called Frost Bank. They're a Texas regional bank. Um, we have been with some version thereof for almost 20 years. I mean, we're talking that we were a customer. <clears throat> we left Texas, and we did get a different bank when we did that. We lived in Pennsylvania for three years. We came back and reopened an account with the same bank. However, it wasn't Frost Bank when we started out. I think it was called Summit or something. Like that. It was a very small bank with like four uh, regional branches, and they were right next to where we lived, so it made it convenient. And every time they got bought out, we just stayed with them, and we love Frost. They do a good job for us. And I think that the most important thing that you can kind of get your head around with you know, picking a bank is it's not like joining the Army. I mean, I, you know, it... it It's not as bad, but it's kind of on par with going to the dentist to freaking open up an account for the first time with a new bank. Once you do that today, you can usually add accounts online. So, you, I mean, you can do everything online once you have that first account. So, I mean, I would look at things like this. Number one, what, are their, what is their interest rate on their savings? If you're, if you're going to be maintaining a very small savings account, a few thousand dollars, it doesn't even matter. A point doesn't matter. But, you know, if you're a person that you're going to build up that 90-day fund and keep it with that one bank, uh, then I recommend that you, you know, look at try to get at least something that's competitive on your savings interest. Why not? Uh, what are their fees? And, you know, what I'm looking for is either a, a flat fee schedule or no fees, right? I want, I want my banking to be as inexpensive as possible. Uh, it, it, it's got to be where they're all so close, it's not that big of a deal. You know, some of the things that we used to say is, you know, you want to make sure they allow online bill paying. Because it just makes your life easier. Well, pretty much everybody does that. And then as the smartphones came around, like, you want to make sure they have an app because that makes management of your account so much easier. And in many ways, an app versus an online interface will be more secure. But now they all have an app. So you see what I'm saying? Like, it gets to the point, 
that you need to look at some of your personal behaviors. If you write a lot of checks, then you're much more concerned about the fees that go against paper checks. If you write very few paper checks and you do most of your bill paying online, which is what we do, then you don't care as much. So, you, I mean, if you're going to compare a couple, just figure out, like, look at your spending habits and how you use money and determine which one will cost you less money and go with that one. You said, how do I know who to trust? This is the way I look at it. Banking is inherently safe in our country because our country is economically stable and it is the best interest of the big banks that none of the banks fail or very few of the banks fail. And on top of it all, we have deposit insurance because not because they want to take care of you because it's in the best interest of the banks that the banks don't fail, including like little banks failing. Like you, it, it's not banks are run a lot differently than a lot of other competitive institutions. If Chevy failed and went bankrupt, it would be good for Ford. I mean, Ford could just make more cars, right? It would be good. Now, I'm not saying it would be good for the American economy, but initially anyway, or I'm sorry, you know, once that initial shock kind of went away and Ford could go out and hire all the good Chevy employees and leave the ones that suck the language, And, Bill, and Chrysler could pick some of them up. And Toyota, who builds mostly in the United States for the U.S. market, could as well. So all of the other car manufacturers would actually benefit if, for, if, if, if Chevy failed, right? Because they would pick up the market share. Banks, because of the way the banking system is intertwined, if a major bank fails, it can cause the entire sector to tank, because of confidence, et cetera, that goes on in the currency. So the banks are in the business of making banking safe because it's in their best interest to do so, not because they care about you. So much so that they've used uh, their, their, their neo-fascist uh, relationship with the state um, to make sure that the state covers their asses, right? So you, you don't have to worry about the bank failing. and you, 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 So I don't trust any of them. But I trust the system enough to use it. That, that's how I would define that. With that, let's take another one. This is really not a question. This is some clarification on uh, when you might decide that as someone who wants to build guns, you want to go the route of getting an FFL. Hi, Jack. Jared, the armorer from North Carolina here calling to answer your question about when it's necessary to get an FFL. So this is a two-part answer. First, You need to have an FFL in order to manufacture a firearm that you intend to sell. An example of this is, say, you make a firearm with the intent to sell it to your next-door neighbor, Jim Bob, for $100. You need to have an FFL to do that. But if you manufacture a firearm with the intent to use it personally, and Jim Bob comes to you after it's done and offers you a hundred bucks for it, you can sell it to him perfectly legally. Now, as to the amount of money that you need to be making in order for you to need to put this into a business and get an FFL, the answer to that is ambiguous and is basically, if you're making enough money to draw the attention of the ATF, you need to have an FFL. It doesn't make a lot of sense. That's the ATF for you. And that's pretty much the long and short of it. This is Jared the Armor signing off. Hope you have a great week and God bless. 
Well, it's uh, it's clarification, or I would say confirmation on what I think I've said already, that pretty much that would be how it would, based on my understanding and interpretation of other laws about the, the sale of firearms, i.e. what they refer to as unlicensed dealers, which there is no such thing. The private sale of a firearm is completely legal. You sell enough of them in a certain way, the, gov the government says, hey, now you're an unlicensed dealer, which means you're breaking the law. You're not an unlicensed dealer. You're dealing without a license, right? That's a totally different thing. Like when they say unlicensed dealer, that almost makes it sound like it's totally okay to be an unlicensed dealer up to a point, right? And it's it, it's really not. Um, what we can, um, what we should surmise, I guess, from this is that it, it's it's almost identical. The, these two worlds, whether you know your private, the, the guys on the back line. Uh, of, of tables at the gun shows, you know, they have a little 10 foot table with seven guns on it uh, that are private sellers at the gun show with a table. That's what they call an unlicensed dealer. When does that person cross over to being in the business of selling firearms and requiring FFL? There is no specific number, and it's almost like the government doesn't want there to be. And, and I can tell you why the government doesn't want there to be. It's not because They want to limit it in of itself. They, they want the flexibility to choose when, where, and how, and whom they prosecute. Let's say that the government came out and said, we'll leave the manufacturing alone for a second. You can sell up to 50 guns a year. Well, everybody'd sell for, everybody that was in that line of work would sell 49. Uh, they would also advertise that they sell heavily and basically be a 49-gun-a-year uh, a dealer. Additionally, we're at a point now where this is becoming an issue. Like it wasn't an issue for, for many, many years. It's only in the last 20, 30 years this has become an issue. Pretty much people sold guns privately and no one gave a shit. And they called it the gun show loophole as all the push for more gun control happened. So now it's in the public eye. This makes it a very difficult thing for the federal government to fix the problem. Because you know what would happen. Let's say the, the government said, okay, we're going we're gonna to specify 50 guns. Well, the ATF can't just do that. The ATF doesn't write laws. right? So they can't just form a policy and create an arbitrary number that's not in the law that Congress passed and the president signed. So now the Congress has to pass a law and the president has to sign it. So could you imagine today... If they, they said, we got to fix this, and it, it came through, let's say the Republicans get the House back, and we're in the best-case scenario to get it done uh, next election cycle. And they say 50 guns. Well, the whole world's going to explode. All the anti-gun people are going, oh, my God, 50 guns. There's going to be a billion guns everywhere or whatever. Okay, and it's 25. Oh, my God, 25. So the people within this system that actually are pro-liberty realize that at this point putting a number on it would result in severe restriction of things that they're totally okay with. That's why it's nebulous. But it does give them the ability to pick and choose their targets at a time of their own choosing, and there really is no clear defined point. This is my view, though. If you are able to legally sell a gun privately, in other words, there is nothing that prevents you I'm, 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 I know, I know, I understand that whether the government says it's okay or not, you can take the gun that's in your closet and go down the road and sell it to Joe. I understand that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you 
can legally sell guns in, in your state under state and federal law today, then there is no reason you cannot acquire an FFL. There's not If you can legally own, possess, and transfer a firearm, then you qualify to get the FFL. So if you are in doubt, get it. And then you have it. The only thing that does is makes it far more difficult for you to sell a gun without doing the paperwork. I think it almost makes it impossible that you, that you can be an FFL and a private seller. I think that is the one thing you're giving up by getting it. And, of course, the record-keeping and all that stuff. But um, if you're going to be working on other people's guns, if you're going to be manufacturing guns or gun parts or whatever, I just think it actually opens so much opportunity. Because let's say you do start building some guns in a little machine shop, and you come up with something really unique. Well, if you have an FFL, you can sell 100 of them a year. No, no problem. You can do all your own transfers. You can have a little side business where, you know, people that are qualified to buy a gun want to buy one on gun broker and they don't want to deal with a shop. And, you know, they just swing by your house and you take care of the transfer for them. I mean, there's, there's you know, there's so many opportunities. I think it's worth doing. And a lot of you guys are thinking about side hustles. You might look into how many different side hustles can you stack once you have an FFL. All right, with that, let's take another one. Question for Jake. G'day, Jake. What are the requirements for moving to the U.S.? Um, in the short term, the long term, residency, citizenship, work permits, that sort of thing. I live in New Zealand, but after recent events, the government is restricting freedoms at an alarming rate. They are using a tragedy to force through gun laws with little or no consulting it's uh, not looking good for the future here. Um, thank you. Well, let's let's break this into two things. One I can tell you a little bit about and one I can tell you more about. Um, let's start off with just immigrating to the United States, period, coming here to live, work, etc. <clears throat> we have one of the worst immigration systems and policies in the world. Most nations, and this isn't pro-Trump because he uses the word, guys. This is just a statement of fact. Most nations in the world, especially developed nations, nations that you'd want to live in, um, have some form of a merit-based immigration policy. What, what value do you bring to our country that makes you want to come immigrate and be here? We have a lottery program where we just randomly pick people. We have an asylum program that's abused like crazy and a big part of the border crisis we're having right now. And we have stupid immigration policy where kind of the easiest thing to do to come here if you don't have much, if you don't have much in any, is in the, the way I'm going to handle this, it is to just do so illegally. So it is a mess. Fernando Aguirre, fair foul, who went through the economic crisis in Argentina and decided eventually, I want to get the hell out of here, um, tried his brains out to come to the United States. And they always ask the same thing. Do you have a job waiting for you? And he'd say, no. And they'd say, well, do you have a business? And he said, yes, that's why I don't have a job. Okay, well, how many people will you be employing? And here's all these policies, and we'll look at No, I don't ha I have a, I, I am, I own a business. I am my sole proprietorship. I, me, myself, run my business. Here's all my financial records. I will not be a financial burden on your country. I have income. I have solid income. I have repeatable income. I can demonstrate that. I do my own thing. Sorry you can't come in. To the point where he actually ended up immigrating to Northern Ireland, and I believe he's still living there. And um, I was kind of shocked to hear 
that you you can't have the kind of freedom with firearms that you do in the United States, but it's actually possible to own guns in Northern Ireland. And I think when I hear you talking about infringement on your liberties and stuff like that, this probably has something to do with the recent shooting and the you know banning of guns in New Zealand. So I don't know exactly what you got to go through. My my old business partner Neil Franklin. Uh, was in the United States for a long number of years, over a decade, legally, but he owned multiple businesses, employed people here in the United States, and moved his businesses here, and that's how he was able to be here. And he still, about once every three years, had to go back home and go through all kinds of bullshit, and even though every time he always qualified to stay, it was always angst and concern that maybe they would say no. And I was, tons of work had to be done to get ready for this so that he could prove the business was on track, the business was working, we still employed people, we weren't, it wasn't a shell company, and that he wasn't involved in bringing stuff into the country he wasn't supposed to be or something like that, right? So that's the, that's kind of the bad news. Here's the good news. If you can find an employer who wants you, you'll probably be able to come. Because then it becomes their problem to fix it so that you can come here, whether it's through H-1B, no matter what it is, they're the ones that can get you over here. And, and they're, 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 they're getting the system that we're in is a pay-to-play system, and the industry has the ability to get this stuff done. Um, the bad news about that, Yet, generally, you're just here on a work visa, and if you lose your job, they throw you out of the country. Um, it makes it not impossible, but a little bit more sketchy to go to another employer, a little harder to do. So you really got to, if you're doing it with an, a, a, you know, a, a job, you got to really want that job. And then you got to think about, well, what happens, you know, even if you stay there for 20 years and retire, well, then what happens then? And there's different mechanisms by which, at that point, you can try to stay in the United States, but nothing's a guarantee. On top of it all, if firearms ownership is your primary concern, a non-resident alien cannot freely purchase firearms in the United States, even if they're here legally. A permanent resident, you don't have to be a citizen, a permanent resident... Uh, can buy and possess firearms on whatever regulations that any other citizen of their state municipality would be subject to. But a non-resident cannot just go buy a gun. You can, in most states, I can't speak for all states, buy guns for hunting. And this is really stupid. Like, if I trust you with a gun for hunting, why wouldn't I trust you a gun to go to the range with? But you can buy guns for hunting. To do this, you have to take the approved hunter safety education requirement course for your state, which is easy. It's a two-day class if you go to it, and if you're not stupid, it's 15 minutes to do it online. Um, and then once you have that, you can buy a gun. But to do that, you need to be buying a gun for the purpose of hunting. So if you want you know, a, a slicked-up AR, that may be a problem. If you were to choose residency of a state that doesn't allow semi-automatic rifles for hunting, uh, and many do not, uh, Pennsylvania may have changed it, but when I was a kid growing up in Pennsylvania, uh, for hunting deer and stuff like that, so you know all of your medium bores, your large bores, uh, they allowed lever action, single shot, pump action, etc. But uh, no semi-auto. It was considered, and it, and it wasn't like owning a semi-auto wasn't legal in Pennsylvania. It wasn't legal to hunt deer with. So if you were in a state that said you can't use semi-automatic guns on deer, 
it still restricts. So there's, there's, you know, you don't have all U.S. freedoms unless you manage to become a permanent resident or gain citizenship in this country. Um, the easiest answer is to get married to a United States citizen. And that even isn't 100% foolproof. So if anybody who listens to this show is now a permanent resident of this country, and you can add to what I said about how you were able to come here, uh, please call in or write in and let me know about it, and I'll see what I can do to help folks like this. I wish our country had the common sense to say, if you can take care of yourself and you're not going to be a burden to us, and you're going to contribute to our society, damn borders wide open. Come on in. And, and I think most Americans would get on board with such an immigration policy. I mean, I'll just throw out my, my immigration policy would be what I just said. You have to demonstrate the ability to take care of yourself when you get here, some way, shape, or form, whether you already own a business, you have enough money that we say, okay, you can survive two years, you'll find a job within two years, whatever. Number one, that's you have to do that. Number two, you do not qualify for any government services. With the extent, and I, you know me, I would get rid of the state if I could, but it's, it's here. I think that if you're paying into SSI, you should, you should be able to receive, whether it's disability, whether it's retirement, whatever, the same as anybody else based on the fact that you, you, you followed the rules. But any other form of government help, uh, you know, food stamps, uh, et cetera, I don't even think you should qualify, for, you know, no kind of welfare, nothing. Now, unemployment, unemployment is something that's self-funded. If you work a job, you pay in to unemployment insurance, and if you lose your job, then you, you see what I'm saying. But no freebies, none. And your your children get no freebies. Even if they're born here, um, if they're born here and become a citizen here, then they're a citizen. Then they get whatever a citizen gets. But if you bring your children here, they don't get anything either because this is something that happens – Uh, with illegal immigration today, the children get the welfare payments. So I would say that if you come here and you have children here, then they're born, they're citizens. When they reach the age of adulthood as a citizen and go out and work for a living like everybody else, that's fine. But you can't come here, have a child, and then be under a certain income level, and then the child, because that's how the illegal, see, illegal aliens don't get welfare. I know you think they do. They don't. They don't get welfare, they don't get food stamps, they don't get, you know, uh, HUD housing, they don't get any of that shit. What happens is they come here, they pump out a couple babies, the babies are U.S. citizens, the babies qualify, of course you can't separate them from mom and dad, so that's how they get welfare payments. So you close that loophole, and you say, if you come here, you don't get shit, and your kids don't get shit. And again, if your kids are born here, they're naturalized citizens, you were legally in the country, okay, fine. When they reach the age of adulthood, they're treated like any other adult. I think most Americans would be fine with what people refer to as open borders. Because then you don't have the problem. But we don't have an immigration system that resembles that at all. We really don't. So, again, if anybody can give this feller some help, I would appreciate it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Nate Hale from Nashville, Tennessee. My question is, can you berm and or bury an aircrete dome? Details. I was listening to your episode about aircrete uh, with Daniel Allen, and I was wondering if you can not only build a dome home uh, with all the unique qualities and, and upsides that that brings with it, 
and also do it with aircrete uh, with all of its unique qualities and upsides. But if you could also berm or bury that dome for the, um, for the thermal qualities and the reduction of uh, needing to heat and cool a home that's buried or burned. Uh, so if you could get all three of those into one system, that's very intriguing to have the, um, the insulation of aircrete to have the cheap cost of building, to have the dome shape and all of its um, strengths, and also be able to berm it in order to uh, hold a uh, more constant temperature throughout the year. I think that would be awesome, but what I don't know is if you berm it or bury it, does it need steel rebar within aircrete? Um, and if you bury it or berm it, does it need to have some kind of membrane put over it so that water doesn't leak through or is aircrete um, already waterproof in and of itself? Thanks for all the details and thanks for the show. Talk to you later. So let, let's talk about this. This is something I'm very new to myself, aircrete. So I didn't really have an answer to either one of these uh, questions, but I've done some research and I have some, also some additional thoughts on this. So let's start out with, can it be burned? I'm going to explain something that a lot of people don't understand. There is nothing that can't be burned. It's just a matter of how hard it is to burn it. Uh, you can, with the right situation, you can burn almost anything. And if you had a aircrete structure enveloped in flames, uh, even if the shell didn't burn, it doesn't mean that it won't destroy everything inside of it. Uh, it doesn't mean that the stuff that's inside of it can't burn. So it is highly fire resistant. I looked at some videos where they basically set the damn thing, you know, every, they put a bunch of burnable shit inside it and set it on fire and the structure stood. So it, it, it does, it is highly resistant to fire, but, um, I would say that you should look at it like most other, uh, concrete buildings as far as that, or any kind of, you know, masonry style building or whatever. It's resistant, but, you know, heat eventually shatters things, et cetera. So don't think it is indestructible when it comes to the world of fire. And it doesn't mean that you can take shortcuts on doing things properly so that you don't cause a fire. Because, uh, again, it doesn't matter if the thing itself doesn't burn. Everything inside it uh, could burn. Now let's move on to burying it. And my answer to that is I was unable to determine that because I couldn't find any information on it because apparently nobody's thought about doing it. And I'll tell you why I don't think anybody's thought about doing it. If you were going to build a subterranean structure, we do know that aircrete is not as strong as just reinforced concrete. That's why that once the structure's done, you basically put a shell on it um, like a fiberglass shell, I think is what, I don't remember exactly, but it's, it's wrapped and then it's kind of masoned over, uh, to create the tensile strength in it that con you know, regular concrete derives from rebar. I guess you could say that with aircrete, you'd have some cost savings on the quantity of concrete because you expand it so much with air, you know, a, a given amount of concrete mix makes more blocks or more square feet or more cubic feet or more cubic yards than a, another given amount without the air bubbles in it. So it would reduce it. But the the main reason they do aircrete is because of how insulative, insulative it is. 
if you're going to build a subterranean structure, the earth provides all the insulation you could ever want. So I don't think that it would make a lot of sense to go through all of the additional trouble and time to do aircrete if you were going to do a subterranean structure which would be insulated by the earth itself. This may be different if you were to berm it, and I can't see any reason that you couldn't create kind of a berm structure. So let's imagine we made a, 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 a dome structure and we, we built kind of a three-quarter berm around it, just left the door open like a hobbit house, and brought the dirt up to the point, let's say, that our windows would be in. I, I can't see any way in which a, a dome or cylindrical or even square structure built of aircrete wouldn't be uh, capable of handling the stress from a berm. Like, I, I would still say that's something to talk to an engineer about, but I, I can't see it being the case. And that may provide some value because now the aircrete above the ground is giving you all of the fantastic installation qualities that aircrete offers you. But I just don't think once you go earth-ground contact with your home, you don't really require aircrete. Now, my main opinion on subterranean housing goes back many, many years. Uh, for a very brief period of my life, I sold insurance. It was for several months And I was really good at it, and they put me into a position where I could make a lot of money by uh, going out and converting and adding to the policies of the elderly. And as soon as they did that, I realized the, the horrid underbelly that is insurance sales, and I quit. When I was still kind of proving myself, though, um, I, was, I would get leads. That was why I went to work for this company. They would hand me basically you know, six leads a day, confirmed appointments. Just, and and you, if you've ever been in sales, if you can get the appointment – You know, you're gold. I mean, if you can get enough appointments a week, you're going to make good money. So this company had a pretty good marketing program to develop the appointments for you. So all you had to do was go out and pitch the product. Well, I, I, I had a situation where I was never going to sell this guy a policy. His wife was the one that agreed to it. I think he agreed to it, too, because he just thought it'd be fun. And I ended up in Denton, and there's a, a community up there that is all, they call them Earthships, but I didn't see a single one I would call an Earthship. They were all concrete houses underground. And it's like a, it's like a com, like a big hippie commune, sort of, except it's not really a commune. It's like a hippie community, I guess. Artists and whatnot. And this guy was an artist. And as I was trying to tell him insurance, sell him insurance, he's pointing out all his art and saying, you know, that's all worth more money if I die, so she'll have that. And so I gave up trying to sell him and just thought, you know, let's, let's have the experience and, and, you know, see the houses. And I got to go in a couple other houses with their friends. And it's Texas. And I was dressed to sell insurance. So, you know, I'm in work slacks and, and nice socks and a long sleeve button-up shirt with a tie. And I'm sitting in August in these houses with no air conditioning. Most of them had very little electricity. They have a little solar array or something like that for some lighting and stuff like that. All the cooking was done either with wood or gas or what have you. And um, I was comfortable. And I don't, I'm not one of those people, right? There's those people who are like, ah, it's fine, you don't need air conditioning at all, man, it's great. And I'm like, no, that's not me. Like people I know that are like from, you know, uh, Los Angeles, like, we don't even use air conditioning, man, we just open the window, turn the fan on, it was cool. No, no, bullshit, right? No, uh-uh, I'm not sleeping with sweat in my neck or whatever. I was like, I could totally live in one of those. So I think earth contact structures are awesome. I just don't know that you need air cream. As far as sealing them, okay, so aircrete will absorb water. Because it's got a bunch of holes in it. 
you always have to seal it. And the way that the houses are built, if you remember the interview, is they wrap it with this, uh, this fiberglass, and then they put a hard coating of, of cement over top of it that's not aircrete, and that creates like a glaze. Uh, they can also, it can also be done, there's other things that can be sealed with, I don't remember exactly what, but people build, you know, planters and stuff out of them, like raised bed gardens and stuff, and, you know, then you obviously are going to have soil contact, so you don't want it absorbing everything, so they, they seal them. Uh, but you can look stuff like that up online. Anyway, those are my thoughts on that question. Good question. Um, certainly any concrete structure is going to be more fire resistant than the one made out of pine. Uh, but again, don't think it's indestructible just because it's made out of concrete. Uh, let's take one more question. This is a complex one on something called MMT, or Modern Monetary Theory. Hey, Jack. It's Max from St. Louis. Uh, I was just wondering if you could talk about uh, MMT for a little bit. Uh, it's called Modern Monetary Theory. Uh, it seems to be all the rage these days in the uh, financial media and uh I think it's a terrible idea, but the sort of uh, Jack Spierko weatherman in me says that something like this is coming probably sooner rather than later, and I was just uh, wondering what your thoughts were on that, and, uh, you know, if uh, helicopter money checks start showing up in the mailbox, what should we do with them? Just spend them as fast as you can because uh, it's going to hyperinflate, or I don't know, just uh, kind of been reading a lot about MMT and just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on it. So thanks for all you do, and uh, I'll listen to the show. All right, we have some conflation going on here, and I'm not picking on the caller because this is understandable conflation because, well, there's a lot of people out there conflating it on purpose. So let's separate two things here. You're talking about helicopter money, and I think you mean money that comes to you because you talked about spending it. All right, so that's UBI or Universal Basic Income. UBI is not dependent upon or justified by MMT, though you can attempt to do so. So let's, for a minute, let's take UBI, where everybody gets a check every month. Let's just put that shit on the shelf, and let's just talk about MMT, and then we'll get to how it's related to it as we wrap up. So modern monetary theory is not a justification to do anything. It's an explanation of what actually happens with government money today and how the government issues money makes money. So the basic theory is that a, a, a government like the United States of America that prints its own money can pretty much print and as much money as it wants and do whatever it wants and any concept of we won't have money to pay for this is bullshit with some caveats. Okay, It's not that simple. That's the basics and then but... So here's some of the buts. The, the way this is accomplished is that the U.S. takes in uh, takes on debt and collects taxes. So the government takes a certain amount of money and it spends it into the economy. It doesn't even matter how. how. Let's say they spent $10. I know you can't even buy a, a, a peanut for $10 in the government, but let's say they $10 bucks to keep the numbers understandable. Well, They know that when they spend that $10 in the economy, even with much lower tax rates, since there's multiple ways that money is taxed by the federal government in the system, about five of it is coming back in the form of tax. Okay, And then some portion of the other five that's still out there in the economy is coming back in the form of debt. 
Somebody's going to buy U.S. Treasury bonds with it. And I know that you don't hold a lot of bonds, and even your old grandma, who everybody says they're so worried about on a fixed income, doesn't really have that much money for money in, in bonds. Uh, basically, wealthy institutions hold U.S. bonds, specifically the banks do, who also issue the money in the first place. And because we live in a fractional reserve economy as well, m the monetary uh, base is expanded outside of the government. In other words, when you go, this is, MMT people would have a hard time explaining this part of it to you, but it's actually critical for their version of things to work. You go borrow money to buy a house, say $200,000. Most of you think, if you haven't listened long enough anyway, think the bank gives you $200,000. They do not give you $200,000. You help them create $200,000 out of thin air, just like the government printing money. They make a journal entry that says you now have $200,000. They don't actually get that money from anywhere. As long as they have a reserve of at least $20,000 somewhere, they can loan you $200,000. See, people think that 10% reserve means if I have $200,000, I can loan you $180,000 and hold the $20,000 in reserve. No, it's completely the opposite. If I have $20,000 in reserve, I can loan you $200,000 against it. You now created money, and that means that money's in the economy. Some portion will be taxed and go back to the government, who will spend it, and some portion of that will be picked up by the institutions who will buy their bonds with it so they can continue the Ponzi scheme. Now, the MMT people tend to leave that piece of fractional reserve knowledge out, and it, 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 the reason I explained it is because it helps their model actually work. It's why their model actually balances But so what modern monetary theory says is that when people say like the Social Security program will go broke, it's bullshit because the money can be printed at will by the government and it's not going to default to do it because it's going to borrow it from itself. And it never has to pay the money back. doesn't matter how big the deficit gets. Screw it. The, 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 the honest MMT people will say, however... There is a certain amount of that money that has to end up back in the form of bonds. And if you can't get enough institutions, people, other countries, etc. to do it, and you have to raise rates, this can cause a problem. If you push too much money into the economy, well, then you can create inflation and the whole system breaks down. So there does have to be some balance to this, and we, we take care of that with U.S. Treasuries. That's the check on the system, and to a degree it is, and to a degree it works. Now, I don't want to go any deeper than that. I have a video you can watch. It's about 30 minutes long. It's on some guy's talk show, and he's clearly a complete leftist socialist asshole. He's got a gal on that's an economist. I believe she was an advisor to Sanders, but she wasn't really a policy advisor. She was an economic advisor. I think I'll watch another video of hers where she said his policies were already in place, you know, My economics advisory is this is how that might work. Uh, she's also very leftist, though. You can tell that as well about her. But she does a, that doesn't mean she can't be right about what MMT theory is. All right. So there's the basics of it, that the government prints its own money and that it's, ba it's a balance between taxes and lending. And a certain amount of the money that's, that's, that's spent out comes back in the form of debt, And then the last pin on this is it's critical for the government to operate in a deficit. 
It's the, that is the way by which there's more money in the economy than necessary to run the economy. That's why we can have savings. That's why we can have investing. It's not untrue. I, it's, I'm not saying it's the way. There's, there's how it should be, and there's how it is. The system that was built, the fractional reserve system that was built, runs better when the nation is operating on a deficit. And for all of the screaming and gnashing of teeth about how horrible it is, the nation's been running at a deficit since 1913. There's been minor surpluses here and there, but in the end, and what has really happened is, uh, due to the deficit is nothing. So it works. So now here's the part I have to tell you that's going to be hard for you to accept if this wasn't already hard enough to accept. And again, I'm just telling you what the theory is and how the money works today, not how it ought to be. This is nothing about this so far has been my opinion. I'm about to venture into the world of opinion, but I believe factual opinion. A government uh, like the United States that is rich in human capital and natural resources can pretty much run an economy on any system that it wants to and make it work. In fact, the fractional reserve system that is a debt-backed currency. We keep saying we're a fiat currency. That's one thing the MMT people keep saying, fiat, fiat, fiat. problem is we don't have a fiat currency. A fiat currency would be the government just says, here's the money, just issues it. There wouldn't be a debt against the issued money. The go a government could issue money and still borrow it, right? But when, you, when, when debt is required to create a currency... And you have a system that also includes fractional reserve banking like I just described, which is Joe buys a house, Joe borrows $200,000, Joe becomes an asset of the bank and creates $200,000 worth of debt back to them plus interest, and Joe generates $300,000 over the life of the loan to the bank, and the bank literally tendered nothing to Joe except a journal entry and held the real property as collateral so that the lending institution, unless there's a complete you know, real estate collapse, the lending institution can't lose. And even if there's a complete real estate collapse, then the government's going to bail them out anyway because they own the government. Like This is the most asinine system of economics we could have ever devised, and yet it works. Oh, Jack, you don't understand. No, I understand perfectly. It's been in place since 1913. Look outside of your house. There's houses everywhere. There's buildings everywhere. It works. I didn't say it works as the best system we could ever get. It works. Why does it work? It works because the value of any nation's economics has nothing to do with their money. Their money is how they account for the value. The value lies in the resources of the nation and the human labor of the organization, of the nation. That's it. What can people do to take the resource and add value to it, and what is the value of the underlying resource? It is the exchange of those valuable things that drive any national economy. The money is how we keep score. So, now that you understand that, this is where the conflation happens. People get a little bit of knowledge. And if they have a predisposition to say this thing should be this way or they want something to be some way, if that knowledge supports in any way their contention that this thing can, should, and ought to happen, then they will lock onto it and use it. So, a little bit of knowledge without the total picture, all of these democratic socialists, the Green New Deal, all these young college idiots that want everything to be free, etc., say, well... If modern monetary theory is correct, 
and we know that it is, and it is, that the government can print money and that there's really nothing to prevent that, then we can afford all this shit. Ugh, you just crashed and burned right there. Here's the, the fundamental reality. Scarcity of money doesn't exist. That's where modern monetary theory is right. There is no scarcity of money. That can actually be the problem. That's why we use things like a debt control, control instrument to create artificial scarcity in the money. The way Bitcoin created scarcity was cap and fractionalized. There will only be 21 million, and therefore we have a finite supply. And then to deal with the fact there can't be more, we'll just make it where you can make tiny, tiny, tiny pieces. So as the currency becomes more and more valuable, you can still spend a penny. Okay? Every currency is has to be designed to create an artificial scarcity because why couldn't you clone Bitcoin and say there's a hundred gazillion of them? People probably have. There's tons of clones out there. Surely one somebody probably did that somewhere that went nowhere, but did it just because so they say they could. I think there's one coin like Russia coin or something like that. They made one, only one, and everybody's mining what you would call satoshis. Right, and it's worth like a hundred. Like the 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 thing itself is worth like a hundred million dollars or something. But there's only one, and it's it's like a, it's like a gimmick just to be at the top of the board listing. So there's always in every currency some way to create a scarcity of the currency so the currency can be managed. We you know, we used to use gold to do that. We everybody's happy with gold back currency. All that was is to create a scarcity because otherwise it's just numbers. Why do you do this? Zimbabwe, you fool. Now just calm down and you got to think deeper than this. You got to stop this shit. Well, it doesn't work or whatever. All these systems people say doesn't work have worked. Every shitty form of government ever tried worked. It enriched one group and enslaved another. It's what it was supposed to do. It worked. I didn't mean you like it, but it worked. The reason is that the resources are limited. And the labor is limited by the individual's willingness to expend the labor. We can get past the individual's unwillingness to expend the labor through things like slavery, which has been proven historically to be highly inefficient. Right? So we need people motivated enough to work. So if we just printed enough money to pay for any everything, there wouldn't be enough people willing to do what's necessary to get the things done that people spend the money on. Additionally, there is a, a, a solid limit on how much timber there is. And we can only cut so much down at any one time or we won't have any more. There's a limit on how many cows we can grow. So we, can have, a, we have to have a limit on how much steak people can eat. So there's, there's really three ways to ration the resources and incentivize the labor. And only three. You can do, I guess, variances of each one. One would be what people call a resource-based economy. This would be we give everybody a certain amount that's about as much as we can give with what we have. Pure socialism. There are 8 million stakes available this year. Uh, you know, that's not a, that's not true either. Uh, might be under socialism. Let's say there's 300 million people in the country. There's 300 million stakes. Everybody gets one stake. One particular, everybody gets one ribeye this year. And if there's enough for everybody to get 10 ribeyes, everybody gets 10 ribeyes. Right? We figure out how much is available. 
Now, this is highly inefficient. I, I want my ribeyes. You don't want your ribeyes. So then you end up with a Star Trek-style resource economy where, well, we'll issue everybody credits, universal basic income, enough to buy their share of the economy. And then they'll go out and buy what they want. And that way Jack can have five ribeyes and Steve, Mark, and Stan, and two other idiots that don't like meat can have more soybeans. And so we get to decide how we spend our credits or our dollars. But we get an even distribution so that we can all have a piece of that resources available. And this pretty much disincentivizes anybody to do anything that nobody wants to do, like take out garbage, right? Like scrub, you know, the ass of a cow or whatever. Like, like, like why would you do that in that economy? So then the, the other way that you do it is that you get the government out of that business and all the government does is make the money and then says, okay, everybody go earn the money and you then it's basically a meritocracy. If you want 100 ribeyes this year, that's fine. You know, they're $11.99 a pound. So you need to go make this much money to afford your ribeyes, however you can by bringing value to the economy. This maximizes the incentive for people to do anything that's available to them to at least get a start on income so they can get up to a certain point and then go out and do something better and, and afford more ribeyes. So those are your two extremes. We live in something that's sort of kind of in between where we have social safety nets and social programs and things like that, where we say if you can't, or in many cases you don't want to, we'll give you enough to survive. The real third way, which is what many people are advocating for in some way, shape, or form, but nobody's ever satisfied with it being enough, so everybody wants everything or nothing, would be to say that there, there is a certain amount of value in this nation, that our coal reserves, our oil reserves, our wind-generating capacity, our timberlands, our soil, our people, there's a certain net worth of this country, and there should be a dollar, you know, if we made a dollar, we should base the dollar on the net worth of the country. And then we could take and spend a certain percentage of that into circulation every year, through something like a UBI. And then the Great Balancing Act. And I'm going to tell you, this could work. I just don't trust the state to do anything, let alone something this, this powerful. All right? Would be to say that, like, okay, let's have everybody get enough money to at least survive. Not to do well, not to have, you know, a, 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 a 3 2 house or whatever and two cars, but like, You won't starve to death. You'll be able to, you know, at least go down to the store and buy some food or some medicine. You, you, you will be able to exist. So we take some portion of the total distribution, and then we distribute that portion evenly, and then say, now, if you want more, go get it. And there's a balancing act where no one will do the really shitty work anymore if you go too high. And there's also a balancing act of where people will just stop working altogether and you won't have enough labor and value add to run the economy. Because remember, the value of the economy comes from two things, the underlying resources 
and the willingness of people to do something to make those resources valuable, usable, transferable. So that's how you could do a UBI. There's a lot of ways it could be done. But one way or another, there has to be a cap on the currency. And right now, that cap on the currency is twofold. One, actually, it's threefold. One, it's how much, how much money will be lent to the United States. Because it does get dicey when they start printing their own, when they really print money, they lend the money to themselves. Right? When they start doing that, it starts to drive up interest rates, and that can really shit can the economy. Two is the debt ceiling. Right, so that's a it's a political football, but it does at least say, hey, you you got to raise this if you want to spend more. And three is Congress and appropriations of spending. So by restricting how much they'll spend, they create yet an, a tertiary, a third cap on the total quantity of money. It would seem to make more sense to do something far more like a cryptocurrency, where the system uses an algorithm to control the supply of the currency. And that way, even it, it, the beauty of a cryptocurrency, especially a cap and fractionalize, is that the currency can get stronger without destroying the economy. You can actually have, if I put $5 worth of AmeriCoin into a virtual wallet, you can have it buy me $10 worth of shit five years later, without grinding the economy to a halt because nobody wants to spend any money. Because people will spend money on the things that are valuable today. If people wouldn't spend money because it would go by up by 10% in value, then they wouldn't spend money now because with a little bit of risk, you can easily eke out a 10% return on your money. So people will spend money for the things they want. When you get into trouble and you get hoarding and you get Gresham's Law, it's when there's two forms of money. When there's two forms of money, huh, well, now I'll hoard one and spend the other. And, and that's, that's where you get people that don't want to spend Bitcoin. They want to hold it because it continues to go up in value. Yeah, it went down, but, I mean, it's, it's rebounding very well. Or when we demonetized silver fully in 1964, everybody hoarded the silver coins because the new ones were not intrinsically valuable at all. A quarter was a quarter, and a silver was almost a quarter ounce of silver, right? So that's where you get that hoarding. So the last piece of this, and critical to modern monetary theory, is the government that's issuing the currency only takes the currency itself for tax payments. And they can control the, the, the fact that society will value the currency because you have to pay your taxes with it. So any corporation, any person, anybody will take the dollar primarily because you have to pay taxes in it and because it works. So for ease of use, plus now I have to pay taxes with it, that's where the money derives its value. And it's true, and that's getting a little gray, but that that's it. And I just hope in this, when I say things like this could work, you're not hearing me say it will work. Because the people that control society, there is no benefit to them and making this system work the way I described with a UBI or something like that. They, they, that does not benefit them. And you can talk about redistribution of wealth all you want from the politicians, but what they really care about is the concentration of wealth. Because they are paid by the people who concentrate the wealth. They are bought and paid for all of them. And, and never forget that. 
And just because something could be doesn't mean you can trust the state to do it. I think eventually we will see private systems developed that do a lot of these things, that create and use a currency that people agree to. And the only thing, the only thing preventing it now is taxation, that that currency that would be created in that virtual world has to be converted back to dollars and given to the United States government if you're doing business in the U.S., for instance. I got to believe somewhere along the way there is a technological way around that. We just haven't found it yet. All right, with that, we have wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I want to remind you one of the ways you can help support us is do your online shopping. You know where. tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You can find all my reviews. You can see the deals of the day on Amazon, all that good stuff. As long as you start your shopping there, you help us no matter what you buy. Today's product is another one in my fertility program. I've said that as we go through spring, I want to remind you of all the products that I recommend in my fertility program. I want to explain something to you about my fertility program. There's been one recent addition, that being the fish newer product, and I brought that in because of how powerful it is um, and because I got you guys a deal direct from the manufacturer with that. Other than that, This has been in place for about 10 years. I've changed the products up here and there, but the, 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 the components have been in place for 10 years, and they were developed over 10 years. So this is something that I've been working on for 20 years to, to distill down to. These are the things that if you use these, you're going to have good results. And the one I have for you today is probably the most overlooked item in most people's plants. We just had, uh, a, week, a week ago, the, the, the second most overlooked, which is uh, calcium and magnesium. And there's, we won't get into it because that's not what we're talking about today, but there's a lot of ways people think they have all the calcium and magnesium they want, and they don't because it's there, but the plants can't get to it. The most overlooked one that I found that if you use this, you probably won't have a problem is an, a good chelated iron and zinc product. Iron and zinc are a lot like calcium and magnesium. If you give a plant iron in absence of zinc, it can't use the iron. If you give it zinc in absence of iron, it can't use the zinc. These two nutrients have got to be there all right, at the same time where the plant can't use them. Additionally, if either is in a form that the plant can't use, there's not enough Uh, soil activity, soil life, exudate exchange going on to make it available, then it can't use either one. If either one is simply there but not available, they have to both be there, they have to both be available. So when supplementing them, it's just easier to, to do them at the same time. And that's why you'll find that almost every product to provide iron to a plant comes with zinc and vice versa because the people that develop these products know this. And If you are supplementing iron, zinc, and calcium, and magnesium in a chelated bioavailable form, and you have a basic organic NPK program, whether it's compost or organic fertilizer or whatever, you're probably going to have plants that, that you know 98% do what they're supposed to do. There's some other things we do to kind of compensate for that, but you have strong plants. And this helps not just with good growth, And avoiding things like chlorosis, where the leaves turn yellow and curl and, and suck, okay, uh, in studded plants. This also is a big part of making sure plants aren't destroyed by pest insects. Uh, when you have healthy, robust plants, then the, the insect damage to them is generally less. 
Uh, and it, what happens is the plants aren't very appetizing to the insect pest. The insect pest most wants disease and damaged plants. That doesn't mean they won't bother you at all, but it also helps stave off insect damage. So you can read my article today on this. It's, it's pretty involved. I don't want to go real long today. We had a really long show yesterday, so I tried to make today's a little bit slow, a little bit shorter um, for all the things. But I'm just telling you, you just use this stuff. It's very affordable. You don't need a lot of it. And if you use it the way that I explained in my article, you, you can look up on the website or at TSPAS, then you're not going to have a lot of problems you typically have. And you can always, in all of my products that are for fertility, if you scroll down to the bottom of the article, you will see a tag. You'll see tagged Amazon Ida today, fertility, gardening, permaculture, right? If you click on that fertility tab, it will bring up all of the items in my fertility program. I'm telling you guys that have struggled with your gardening, it's not really expensive to use these products because you're using a little bit throughout the year. Many of them will last multiple seasons. If you follow the program, you will have good results. I have not had anybody yet that says, Jack, I got all of your fertility items. I used them the way that you described, and my garden sucked. You know, if, if, it, if it doesn't rain and you don't water, okay. Right, But assuming that you do the things that you're supposed to do, use this fertility program. It will blow you away with how productive your garden can be. Uh, again, this is an iron-zinc program. It's made by a company called Liquinox. And there are other products out there. I suggest you use a chelated iron and zinc. I've been using this particular manufacturer's product for about seven years. And if I wasn't confident in them, I wouldn't recommend them to you. Check it out. Liquinox, iron and zinc. And, yeah, we can do a lot with rock minerals and rock dust and green sand, but when it comes to iron and zinc deficiency, you want to get on it. I generally give my plants a good shot of this stuff, along with the calcium mag at the beginning of the season, and then I watch them. If they don't show any weakness, they don't show any leaf curl, they don't show any chlorosis, I don't use any more of it. That's why it's cheap. But if I see anything that looks like that plant is not the color it's supposed to be, It's not growing the way it's supposed to grow. I hit it with these four elements, iron, zinc, calcium, magnesium, and a little bit of like a Garrett juice or compost tea or organic fertilizer, and boom, they take off again. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap the show up. Uh, song of the day this week uh, is uh, from Jackson Brown. And uh, Jackson Brown Week, of course, one of my favorite artists of all time. This is one of his earliest songs. And it's a song that most people, even those that like Jackson Brown, have never heard. And I think it might be one of his best songs. It's called Looking Into You. And when he's looking into you, I guess it could be he's looking into a house that he grew up in, because he is in the song. But I think it's really about looking into you. Like, that sounds like maybe a love song. You're looking into the, the inner workings of your partner or whatever. No, looking into yourself. Think of it that way. This is he's older now. He's grown And he's looking at this house that he grew up in. And a family he doesn't know is now living there and growing up there. And they're in his space. And he talks about how, in the end, we're all just renting. Nobody really owns this place. And at that point, you might think he's still talking about the house. No, he's talking about this world we live in. This life we have. We're temporary. This is a man coming into touch with his mortality. And realizing the past, good or bad lies in the past. There is the present and there is the tomorrow. And the things that we most cherish from the past can only be memory. We can never go back there. And that as we move forward, 
every single day, no matter how great that day is, ends when we have one less day on our journey. So you know what I'm going to say. Make the most of those days. As I move in and, and, and close in on turning 50, I'm not there yet and I won't be there this year or next year, but I'm getting close. I start to realize that by the law of averages, I have more days in my past than I have days in my future. And it makes me value them more. And it makes me look back. And for all the good in my life, think, I could have done more by now. And when I was younger, physically stronger, was more able to do things just as far as just energy level, as far as just you know how many injuries I've sustained in my life. Did I waste any of it? And the answer we must all come to is we all waste some. But we can't do anything about that as we look into ourselves and into our past and into that house that we grew up in that some other family is in now. That house that will eventually crumble to the ground and no longer be there. That we're just renters in this place we call Earth. So we might as well be good tenants. Do the best we can for the place while we're here. Do the best we can for ourselves while we're here. Do the best we can for the people we care about while we're here. And try to leave the place just a little bit better than the way we found it. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Well, I looked into a house I once lived in. Around the time I first went on my own When the roads were as many as the places I had dreamed of And my friends and I were one Now the distance is done And the search has begun I've come to see where my beginnings have gone All the walls and the windows were still standing And the music could be heard at the door Where the people who kindly endured my odd questions Asked if I came very far And when my silence replied They took me inside Where their children sat playing on the floor Well, we spoke of the changes that would find us farther on And it left me so warm and so high But as I stepped back outside to the gray morning sun I heard that highway whisper inside Are you ready to fly? And I looked into the faces all passing by It's an ocean that will never be And the house that grows older and finally crumbles That even love cannot be built It's a hotel at best You're here as a guest You ought to make yourself at home While you're waiting for the rest Well, I looked into the dream of the millions That one day the search will be 
edge of my embattled illusions looking into Now I'm looking in my life For the truth that is my own 